It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. All right, now you may be seated again for another two seconds or so. Just kidding, longer than that. Um, So, yeah, again, welcome. I'm going to have, in just a moment, I'm going to have Danielle come up and lead us in a prayer. But just uh, for now, if you have kids you want to take back to the kids' room, um, we've got one on the right back by the entry door. We also have a a nursery space. I think it's just the door on the right tonight. and I wanted to just briefly update you a little bit on the, what we've been doing for the summer, because we're, in a sense, still in the midst of that. So for the summer, we went through the book of First Peter, and the, the book of First Peter, I've been saying, has been showing us what the Christian community is supposed to look like, and why it's compelling, why it should be something that, um, that we understand as Christians to be compelling, and if you're not a Christian, why you should consider being a part of it. So... We've been spending time looking at that through the book of 1 Peter. We're in uh, 1 Peter 3, so we're kind of in the, in the middle toward the end of this book. But that, that's the topic. That's what we're going to be digging into uh, in this time together. So prepare for that. We're, we're going to do our teaching time out of that now. After that, we're going to do a time of silence. Uh, we're going to have the Lord's Supper after that. And then it's dinner time, and it's a potluck dinner uh, this evening. So... Um, yeah, I'm, I don't know what it is. I have no idea what we're going to eat, so it'll be great. And uh, with that, Danielle, if, uh, if you would come up, we're going to have Danielle lead us in a prayer that's shaped around the Lord's Prayer. Okay, let's pray. Um, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, thank you that you are holy and set apart from all things on earth. Because of this, you can be completely trusted with every detail of our lives, no matter how impossible the circumstances may seem. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, thank you that your kingdom cannot be shaken. Would you equip us to have eyes for your kingdom alone and how you are bringing about it in our day? Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus, thank you that your grace is sufficient for us in times of suffering and pain. Help us learn to be gratefully dependent on nothing else besides your love and presence. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God, forgive us for the ways we find our comfort and hope in the things of the world. We pray that you would remove the idols from our lives that oversell and underpromise. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For in you is life, and that life is the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So this evening, uh, the, the text here that Nathan read to you in one of my commentaries was, was declared the most complex train of thought in the whole book of 1 Peter. And then uh, Martin Luther, famous uh, for being one of the instigators of the Protestant Reformation. So this is a guy who, uh, who spoke to the Roman Catholic Church as a whole and made great declarations. When he read this and wrote a commentary on it, he said, this part I do not understand. And he refused to try to interpret it. So that's what I get to talk to you about tonight. But uh, I, actually, I actually think that this text at its core, uh, and what Peter was trying to get across at its core, is very simple. And what it's saying is this, that unjust suffering is not pointless, but powerful. Um, though unjust suffering is never desirable, even Peter here said, if, if it's God's will, you would suffer unjust suffering. It's not something you go out looking for. Um, but, but though it's never desirable, even if it can be um, embraced, if it comes, it can be deeply impactful in the lives of others. Um, I found one of the most challenging portions of what John taught on last week, and it was part that he spent a little time on, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig back into it, was this idea of not returning evil for evil. And this is the continuation of that thought. It's better to suffer um, for doing good, if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. It's better to suffer than to return evil for evil. That's essentially what we're learning here. Uh, evil for evil, of course, is default uh, non-wisdom, but it feels like wisdom and reason, right? Um, somebody hits you in the face. I just watched, um, I went down a rabbit hole of sports fights earlier today. Um, YouTube got me good. And, uh, and that's what it is, right? Like the, the pitcher, uh, you know, hurls it in, intentionally hits the guy. He goes running out, throws the helmet first, takes out his legs, hits him in the face, right? It all fe- and you're watching it, you're like, yeah! I don't, you know, why, why do we do these things? Um, but we do. And those are the really dramatic versions of it, but we do these things all the time. When we don't talk to somebody who didn't talk to us, we snub somebody who snubbed us, uh, somebody who didn't really, you know, give us the time of day. We don't give them the time of day. It's all the same. It's returning evil for evil. It's, uh, it's retaliation. And there are two ends, it seems, it can feel like two ends of the spectrum available to us. The one, the one end is cowardice, in which we don't do anything and we don't defend ourselves and we just get hurt and we don't stand up for anything. And the other end is retaliation. And we seem, as people, uh, to just really go back and forth between the two. And we, we aren't sure which one to embrace at any given time. But what this text is teaching us is that bravery and love can come together when we endure evil and pain with redemptive purpose. They come together when we endure evil and pain with redemptive purpose. Uh, Both sides of our, if you were to look at our society and kind of how it sorts itself, we all struggle with this. We, We know that cowardice isn't good. It's not... It's not good to just keep your opinion to yourself. That can't be right. You need to stand up for things. Uh, But at the same time, returning evil for evil, we often lose more than we gain. 
Um, often we get exposed ourselves when we return evil for evil. So in this scripture, we find God's wisdom on the topic. And here's what I want to show you, this principle. I want to just show it to you again in the scripture. It's better to suffer than return evil for evil. How Peter illustrates this um, in Christ ministering to disobedient people. He shows us Christ's example of this. And then the hope that we have because there's a power that follows sacrificial love that is unique. It's absolutely unique. So the principle, the illustration, and the hope. The principle, again, it's better to suffer than repay evil for evil. I'm going to say this so many times. It is better to suffer than repay evil for evil. Do you believe this? Um, Do I believe this? First, I want to explore a little again what it isn't before we dig into what it is. What it isn't, as I've said, it's not cowardice. Redemptive suffering is not cowardice. Uh, What do you think of when you think of cowardice? I think uh, here's the caricature, right? The the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz, right? Uh, Frank Baum was the the creator of this character. And the cowardly lion is deeply insecure. Uh, He is insecure at the core. There he is. Um, And he has this power. He has the same power that all other lions have, right? That's That's the great mystery of the cowardly lion. He is indeed a lion. Um, the trouble is that he doubts his ability to be exactly what he is. And he learns, of course, in The Wizard of Oz, that courage is not the absence of fear, it's acting despite your fear. He learns that he can act and be a lion even when he doesn't feel like one. But we think of, of the cowardly lion when we think of cowardice. And a coward in regard to their faith chooses not to do the difficult thing for fear, usually, that they are not the real deal, that their faith is not real, that they're not a real believer, right? And they'll be found out. And for the Christian, the pattern of redemptive suffering comes from Jesus, who endured the cross. He he endured unjust suffering on the cross. Would you call Jesus a coward? Um, I don't know any faithful Christian who would. There are revolutionaries in Jesus' time who, who may have thought he was. That might have been their appraisal of him. But the reason I would say Jesus was not a coward was because he chose to endure suffering, not because of insecurity, not because he didn't know who he was. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He stated to people who he was, and he trusted God with his pain. He trusted that through his suffering, God would be faithful. He wasn't doubting who he was. He was moving through fear with anchored hope. So when the Christian is called to unjust suffering, not to repay evil for evil, it's not a call to cowardice. It's a call to follow Jesus. It's two things, especially in Peter's mind as he's sharing this with us. And, and I've had to go back. I've been trying to read the whole book of 1 Peter every time I, I preach a sermon on it, just straight through. And I'd encourage you to do that with books of the Bible. Read them all the way through. That's normally how they were presented to us, not in little tidbits. And when you read it all the way through, it becomes really evident there were two things that Peter understood unjust suffering to accomplish. And the first was what we, we would call evangelism. And the second would be an exhibition of grace. Or sorry, that's really an explanation of evangelism, experiencing God's grace. Evangelism and experiencing God's grace and God's presence. 
Peter tells us that Jesus was suffering now for the unrighteous. That's who he, he stated in there. And that's me, okay? I am not right, not entirely, not in God's eyes and not in yours. Uh, if, you, if you know me, this is a small, small community, right? Some of you know me pretty well. I am not righteous. You're, you're aware of this. Um, I do not deserve to be suffered for in and of myself. I deserve what everybody else deserves, uh, to reap what I sow. You know, when you sow a seed in the ground, it grows. You get the plant that you sow. So when I sow selfishness, as I often do, I don't deserve to be prioritized in return. I deserve to reap what I sow. When I sow sarcasm, as I did even this weekend, as my family could remind you and tell you about, um, I don't deserve to be repaid in kindness. I don't. I deserve to reap what I sow. But when Jesus died, he died for me, for the ungodly. He quite literally, in, in the case of his disciples, gave himself up for disciples that were in the act of running away and abandoning him and denying him. Just as, as they did that, he was dying for them because they were like me. They were unrighteous. And that's the textbook definition of grace. It's undeserved favor, treatment that doesn't, become, that doesn't come to you because you deserve it. It's receiving something not because you deserve it, but because of a predetermined loving choice. That's grace. And then in Jesus' death, he went and proclaimed his grace by, by sharing good news with others. We'll explore that more in a bit. But this is the ultimate evangelistic act. He is offering and sharing good news in the very act of his redemptive suffering. As he suffers unjustly on the cross, he is declaring to his disciples who are denying him and running away from him that he loves them and is sacrificing himself for them at that very moment. So Jesus' unjust suffering is an exhibition of God's grace to us. It was the gracious nature of God enacted and embodied for real people to see and experience. And they did. And it's what changed their lives. It's why Peter is writing to us because it changed his. And that's what Jesus calls us to do as well. That's what Peter is teaching us. It's not to be a softy um, who goes around not really tell, you know, sharing your opinion. It's to enact and embody the grace of God to other people the way that Jesus has given it to us. It's evangelism. It's good news. And next, it's an actual experience of Jesus because endure, in enduring unjust suffering, as Jesus did, we experience the presence of Jesus in a profound way. This is a, this is a huge theme in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Um, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, this is probably a teaching that he taught multiple times. We, we tend to read it once per gospel, or in, except in John. But the, this was probably something that he taught multiple times. And he said in there, blessed or happy are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So you, you will be happy when you receive these things because of me, when these things happen to you because of me, Jesus said. And then he promised it would come. In the book of Matthew, uh, we read this. He tells his disciples, you will be hated because of my name. That's rough. He promised it. Um, Paul, uh, recorded by, by Luke, that Jesus said this to him at his conversion. He said, I will show, or sorry, showed a close friend of his at his conversion. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. Like Paul, who, who becomes this great apostle, and he did suffer, 
Um, this is something he heard right up front. You're going to suffer uh, because of me. The New Testament letters exhibit it as a sign of belonging to Jesus and belonging to one another. Letters like Hebrews and James point us back to the Old Testament, and they show us that in the Old Testament, faithful people suffered back then because of their connection to the God of the Bible. But perhaps the most on-point scripture of this is in Philippians, and this is Paul. And it especially illustrates what I'm saying tonight. He gives us his... Uh, motivation, and then he includes something about suffering. Here it is, Philippians 3, uh, 8 through 11. Paul says, I count everything, and he's talking about his, brevi- his previous bragging rights, his education, his pedigree, all the things about his life he used to brag about. He said, I, ca- I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, And count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, which is grace, by the way, righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and might share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and by any means possible that I might attain the resurrection from the dead. And this is an incredible thing. Can you imagine wanting this to share in Jesus' sufferings, to become like him in his death? The language carries with it this idea of participation, of a deep knowledge that comes from shared experience, of a transformation becoming like him, doing or you know because of being with Jesus in the suffering so the renunciation of repaying evil for evil and the willingness to endure unjust suffering is an invitation not just to know who Jesus is or to suffer for some great ideal but it's actually to experience Jesus at the deepest level to draw close to his heart and to his pain And I know this is a deep mystery, but Jesus has promised his presence to his people. So it's an invitation to experience what he experienced with him. The 23rd Psalm, so long before the life of Jesus, you have David, the psalmist, who says, even in the shadow of death, he's talking about this is the darkest, deepest, this is when he's most afraid. And he imagines God, he says, "In in the shadow of death. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I mean, do you know what that means? That means in the darkest times, in the hardest times, in the times of suffering, we actually can have our most profound experiences of God. And that's the principle that Peter is laying down here. Really, it's, it's one we've been exploring here for weeks. I'm just stating in different ways. The, the book of 1 Peter seems to be almost taking a diamond and turning it so you look in all these different facets and see all these different angles as to why this new way, this different way, this redemptive suffering, suffering, laying your life down, being a servant, is good, is a blessing. We're called to not repay evil for, either, for evil, but rather to entrust ourselves to God and do good. In our personal relationships, this was a few weeks ago, across faith lines, in our political lives, in our workplace relationships, even masters to servants, 
Peter has told us to apply this in marriages, especially, especially, especially to people who do not share the faith that we have. And this isn't a call to cowardice. It's a call to put Jesus on display and exhibit grace and to have a deeper experience of Jesus. And that can happen on the personal level and on the level of a whole community. You can experience Jesus more when you suffer what he suffered. So that's the principle now for the illustration. And this, of course, is that difficult portion. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a lot of big and very legitimate questions here. There's a reason even Martin Luther said, I am not ready to interpret this. Um, what does it mean that Jesus went to imprisoned spirits? That's a complex idea. Were these fallen angels? Were these people who died in Noah's flood? Were these all the people in total who lived before Jesus? What did he proclaim to them? Um, what does this mean for the way Christians teach about baptism? These are all excellent rabbit holes for you to go down some other time, okay? Because they are not the point of what Peter is saying, and they would take us off track. They're interesting. You should explore them, just not today. Peter has been clearly teaching a minority group of people. He, at the beginning of his letter, he called them aliens and strangers. Elsewhere in the letter, he called them sojourners, which is people who are away from home. They are outsiders entirely in the situation that they're in, in the city and in the space that they're in. Being in the minority means you're very liable to being mistreated and misunderstood, potentially even persecuted, right? And to those people, he has taught the principle Jesus taught, that the kingdom of God comes through servanthood, He's taught that as Jesus washed his disciples' feet, which is when Jesus taught servanthood, so Christians are to proclaim the kingdom by going out and serving others. This has been what he has been teaching the entire letter. This has been captured so well visually for our day by a charismatic Catholic named Jess. And many of you have seen her images, uh, salt and gold, if you're on uh, social media, you may have seen them. This, this is not a high-res version of it. I'm sorry. Um, and her tagline for this collection is, it's never been about who's on the seat. Um, but there's all kinds of people on the seat, right? You can see our current and former president in the seat. You can see people on different sides of issues in the seat. You can see people who are you know, outcasts in our society or who go unnoticed. There's children. There's the Pope. You've got historic figures. She has all these different pieces where the person is in the seat and Jesus is washing their feet. She isn't saying the person in the seat is right or wrong. As her tagline says, it's not about who's on the seat. She's making a visual to help us see how Jesus would break through into someone's life. How Jesus has commanded us to approach people and in so doing, she's teaching us, you know, how to, how to approach specific people that, 
these folks symbolize in our lives. She had a post up. She said, only you know who's in the seat for you. And it's the one you can't stand is the one who's in the seat, who she wants you to imagine is in the seat. But she also wants you to presuppose, because she did an event where there was, there was a seat and you could sit in it. She wants you to presuppose that you and I have to be in the seat as well. And not just some neutral Jesus's favorite version, right? Have you ever, like, this is how we think of ourselves. And you have to be aware of this. This is how I think of it. I look at my sins and I think they're pretty understandable, right? The terrible things that I do are pretty normal to me. They're not that bad. They're really quite forgivable to me. And I've never met anyone who doesn't sort of feel that way. You might be like, have this aching sense about who you are, but at the end of the day, you understand it. You get it. You look at others like you and you go, yeah, you're not as bad as them, right? This is how we are. You have to imagine the person to whom you are the worst (laughs) being in Jesus's position and how hard it'd be for you to be on the seat for them. The person to whom your style of engagement is really, really frustrating, right? Or the person to whom your belief system is terrifying. And then think of all the ways that they're right. And imagine yourself in the seat. And Jesus has indeed, if, you, if you've heard his voice, if you follow him in any way, shape, or form, he has done exactly that. And, and our sins, by the way, go way deeper than we want to believe. The definition of sin is when you aim for perfection and miss by a millimeter. So when you're trying to do what's right and you just can't quite get it, that distances us from God, who is always on point. And in his eyes, when we're trying our hardest, we just can't quite make it. But he comes and he serves us. He laid his life down for us. That's not to mention the times when we've ignored him to his face and broken the laws that we know he's given to us. Here at Mission, uh, here at this church, we've tried to capture this in our little mission statement, broken people given grace serving others. Here's what it means, broken people. Why do we start with that? Because you have to own that. You do. Like to be a Christian, here's the gateway into Christianity. The only way in is you have to say, I'm not good enough on my own for God. That's belief number one. On my own, I'm not good enough for God. I need grace. I need mercy. And then the second one is given grace because God has indeed offered this mercy, this grace to everyone. It's on the table. If you can see it, you can receive it. We have been on the stool. Jesus has served us. And then serving others is the response. So we act out of what Jesus has done for us. And what do you have to presuppose? The other people like us, right? Like you, like me, are broken people. So you're going to serve people that are hard to love. Peter's letter has been teaching us this. In the midst of being outsiders, It doesn't change anything. So I think there's fear in our culture. If you're in religious circles, there's fear in our culture. This won't be a safe place. And I have really simple and encouraging but difficult news for you. Jesus' call for you will not shift a bit if this becomes a hard place to live as a Christian. It will be serve. 
and lay your life down. It's the same. Going back several weeks, Peter applied this principle to representing Jesus in our culture, as I said, in politics, in marriages, in workplaces, especially to undeserving critics. He happened to, to do this one in the most intimate of possible relationships. He was talking about marriages in which the, the husband didn't believe and the wife would lay her life down to serve him. That's hard. How hard is it in a space like that? But the call was to do that because that is what Jesus did to save us. And in light of that theme, the most important element of the illustration that Peter gave emerges, and that is that what Jesus did when he died on the cross was suffer for the unrighteous, not, not because of the unrighteous. Jesus didn't just suffer because we were unrighteous, but for the unrighteous on purpose. And why? It says this, to bring us to God. To restore the relationship that we broke. And to me, that clears up the meaning of what this proclaiming is that Jesus was describing, most likely. I think it fits the theme if Jesus is proclaiming grace to people pre-Jesus who deserved nothing like me so that the work of Jesus could be applied to them. It means this, that God is very generous with his grace, that those who deserve and even experience some form of judgment may still be recipients of grace. The comparison between Noah's flood and baptism is this. The purpose of Noah's flood was to cleanse the earth. It was redemptive. But redemption always requires judgment and justice because evil needs to be dealt with. And we all know this when it's in the lives of the people we don't like right? Baptism is a cleansing ritual that for Christians points to the fact that Jesus bore God's judgment on himself. So anyone who trusts in him can be saved and experience the redemptive side of God's restoration. That was a very big statement. So I'm going to try to illustrate it with a little story from my life that some of you know. And it's when I got fired from the Christian bookstore. It's one of my favorites. Um, this is a very gracious part of my story, but I, uh, I had some arrogance in me. I got fired on Christmas Eve for not following the store's practices and not listening to what the owner had to say. And we all know that workplace practices need to be upheld, and if they're not, things get messy. If you've ever been in a workplace where the standards aren't upheld, people get away with stuff and people get frustrated and it's a mess. So it actually is helpful when the standards are upheld. And I was on the end of that in which I got fired, right? Um, and people who disrupt the workplace like me should be fired for the good of the workplace, for the good of the coworkers and the customers. But, but getting fired isn't great. It's not the best. It really hurts. Um, but when I got fired, it was justice. The earth of that bookstore was cleansed of me. I was baptized out of that place. Do you see it? But then later, I walked back in, and apparently my daughter was told, I walked in a few times, I only remember once, and I was, I was received back. I was lifted up. I was brought back. In fact, not only was I restored I, and got my job back, they made me the manager, it took a little bit. Yeah. 
In the flood metaphor, I was washed off the face of the earth, and then I was revived from the depths and placed back up on the boat in a place I did not deserve. And that's a real application. I mean, that, that actually happened to me, and it's one of my stories that helped me understand the Bible. When I hear about the grace of God, I think of the actions of actual people who did that for me. And we could, could and should be doing those types of things. And that is the work of Jesus and what it does for people. Jesus declared to spirits, washed off the earth in Noah's day. And Peter teaches us that that's what our baptism means, is that, that we are the type of people that should be washed away, but instead the redemptive work cleanses us. What should wash us away becomes our redemption. I know that really got complex. I'm happy to talk about it more later because I got into the whole baptism thing. But the principle remains if we endure unjust suffering, resist pain back evil for evil, we will enter into this redemptive side of the illustration and what Jesus did for us. The illustration teaches that's how Jesus worked to redeem the world. It's how he's redeemed me. It's what he offers to you. He suffered so that we could live. Now, the hope on the other side of the principle, um, which is what we find at the end of our scripture this evening. It's echoed throughout this letter, throughout the New Testament. It's anchored in this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter wrote, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Simply put, Jesus endured unjust suffering, again, not out of cowardice, but as an exhibition of grace and God was not distant from it. God was present with him in it. God honored it, and he exalted his son and delivered on what he promised. Jesus, as God's son, was on a mission to redeem broken people with the expectation his father would resurrect him from the dead, and that unjust pain that he endured would be worth it in the end because God would use it to save those he came to serve and that he would enjoy the results of our redemption. And that's exactly what happened. We forget sometimes how much God loves reconciliation. God loves to bring people back to him, to bring estranged, sinful people back to him and back together because it magnifies his mercy and grace. It's been a while, but earlier in 1 Peter, we showed that the good news of Jesus and its application to people is such a huge deal, according to Peter, that the eternal servants of God, the angels, the eternal messengers of God long to understand it. Peter said. They long to look into these things. Why? They wish they could experience it. They know the power of God. They see the face of God. They know the wisdom of God. They know the justice of God, the holiness of God, but only broken people made in God's image, fallen from grace, responsible to God, but separated from his presence, therefore limited in their understanding, only people, the type of people who Jesus looked down at off the cross and said, Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. Only we broken people can be on the receiving end of grace and mercy. So Jesus enjoys the result of his redemptive suffering. Though unjust, it's worth every bit of the pain. And he had hope that that would be the case. He knew his father was faithful. And the result of his work is that we can look at the faithfulness of God to him and hope in the faithfulness of God to us. 
We can reject the faux wisdom of returning evil for evil in an act of Christian faith in the power of God that exhibits grace and experiences Jesus' presence and hopes that the power of God that rose Jesus from the dead is going to help us get through our suffering. This all can feel very theoretical, but it gets practical really, really quick. I want to show you a couple ways, kind of in the negative and positive. There's a very current and tempting movement among Christians to use the methods of the culture against it. There's a best-selling book out in Christian circles about this. There's a conference, a buddy of mine was just telling me, that's being aimed at Christian pastors that's teaching exactly, and I, and I kid you not, the very quote was used at this conference, turning the other cheek is getting us nowhere. And they're aiming at pastors because that's the group of people that influences Christians, Okay. This is a very strong movement to say the way of Jesus, redemptive suffering, is not working. Now, lest you be discouraged, the the friend of mine who is telling me about this is working on actually a ministry to reach these people as if they're in a cult. Not all Christians are into this. And and, and, And guess what his method is? It's not returning evil for evil. It's becoming the trusted voice in, the, in those folks' lives that, that is, like, is kind and asking good questions and trying to get to the deeper motivations and fears of their hearts so that they can speak to it. That's what he's teaching. He's teaching redemptive suffering to enter into the lives of disgruntled, angry people and hear them and understand their pain. Okay, But he's reaching them like a cult because a cult is one that claims to be one thing while actually leading its people astray. And if Jesus suffered to save and taught, turn the other cheek, you can't reject that and claim to be following Jesus. The two are incompatible. Now, it's okay to to ask exactly what Jesus meant by that. We did that here a few weeks ago. We spent time on that very verse, turn the other cheek. It's not just as simple as be a doormat. It's actually exactly not that. But it also is not true that it's not working. When you dig into it, not only does it work, it has more profound power than any other method on earth. But it's also costly. It takes more creativity, more patience, and more hope. I just went to an 80th birthday party of a friend of mine, a longtime Christian leader. Here's another way it gets practical. It was really cool to hear people's stories. He, he is an advice giver. He was a counselor. A number of people said, you saved my marriage and things like that to him. But the most impactful thing I heard was from his wife, who stood up, and she said to him and to all the people filled a church for his birthday party, she said, I have such a temper, and whenever I've gotten mad at you, even though it's hard for you, you've never risen up to the same level and repaid me with what I was giving you. You hear it? You never, you never returned evil for evil. And she just said, you are such a good man. I'm so grateful for you. And part of what I had said about him was that he had called and apologized to me one time, and he far outranks me in knowledge, wisdom, education, and experience in ministry. Yet he lowered himself and called me and said, you know what? I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And that's the kind of person where I go, what's going on with that? That's different. That's what's compelling about the Christian community. That's what should be, is that kind of stuff. Not, that, not our perfect lives. Not that we get it all right, right? But that we receive grace enough to humble ourselves. That we receive grace enough to not return evil for evil, but to do something more powerful and transformative. 
And that's where the work tends to happen. Sure, we could have the dramatic story of near martyrdom. It could happen. Most Christians won't, though. And it really isn't a goal. But every single one of this, us will face this principle on a day-to-day basis. Every single one of us. Will we respond in kind? Will we repay evil for evil? Anger for anger, snub for snub. And if we can't do it on the day-to-day basis, I don't think we should really be on TikTok doing it or attempting to teach or whatever, right? I think we should be working on it on the day-to-day. Back in, the, back in the beginning of this letter, Peter referred to various trials. You know, the trials that don't even get named. He said, you're facing various trials. <laughs> um, I wonder what they were. I, I don't know. Um, a little later, he clarified a little more of the calling that he was calling these people to. We, we talked about this weeks and weeks ago, but I just want to frame how simple these things are. He called them to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. We talked about that on 4th of July weekend. Um, so, so malice, just, to, just a reminder, somebody wants, say, let's, I'll talk to the church for a second. Somebody wants us to fail. Should we want them to fail? That'd be returning evil for evil, right? When someone wants us to fail, we should want them to succeed. Do we root against them? No. That's not the way of Jesus. That's not how he came to us. When we were sinners, he came wanting us to live and succeed and be forgiven. This is difficult stuff. How do we do that? We struggle to do this with those that we love. Jesus goes beyond this to call us to love our enemies. Where do you get the power to do such a thing? We're so unrighteous. We struggle to serve truly our best friends let alone our acquaintances, let alone our enemies. And to do it, we must see, and this is the only way, we must see that we are not in a different class. We are enemies of God. We can only offer what we have been given, only what we receive. In Jesus, we receive his servanthood, his grace. I like this illustration that the the last one from, um, from the foot washing series that just leaves an empty seat. It'll come up. Because it requires you to say, I am the one that needs the seat. I am the broken person. I am the recipient of grace. Only then, and with the hope that comes from seeing Jesus' servanthood applied to me, can I serve others who don't deserve it. I guarantee you, my friend whose wife said that, he understands how much he's in the seat. That's why he calls and asks people, you know, 50 years younger than him, or 45 or whatever. How old am I? I don't know. Um, 40 years younger. Um, That's why he calls and apologizes to people who he's far advanced because he knows I need to be in the seat. When I see that Jesus rose from the dead, that he gave up his life for me, that he's lifting me up, that I deserve to be baptized off this earth, but instead of that being my judgment, it's my redemption. When I entrust my future, my feelings, my reputation, my security, my fulfillment to God the Father, even my unjust suffering, then I can offer that to others. 
And this is why Christian worship always presses us to receive the servant love of Jesus. This is why we're insistent on taking the Lord's Supper every week, every single time. Because the only way you come in is to walk up and say, I'm a broken person. And to receive his grace because Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Which means you need it. But it also means he loves you. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. He's offering himself everything he has. He's laying his life down. He's, he's washing your feet. And then when you walk away from this table, you're sent with the mission to carry forward his work into the world, to go and do likewise. At this time, I'm going to pray, and there's going to be two minutes of silence Mike will come up and lead us in some songs, and during that time, the Lord's Supper will be available. I'll serve it to you. Maybe ask these questions. Um, perhaps this is for, for the two minutes of silence, or maybe even for afterward. What's the most basic level at which I struggle with returning evil for evil? Maybe forget the big ticket items. On the most basic level, how do I struggle with this? And if God were to repay the evil I do to him and others, what do I deserve? And what has he washed away? Let's reflect on that together. I'm going to pray to start our time. Father, thank you for your grace. Um, You present yourselves in the scriptures over and over again as merciful and good. Even back when the law was given, when Moses descended down the the mountain with the tablets, he had just seen a vision of you. Gracious and merciful is what you showed him. Your nature, you're holy, but you're gracious and merciful. God, may we approach you as such. May we see truthfully how how much we fall short, but then sense you lifting us up. May we sense your grace and your mercy. Break through our hearts and show us. Show us who we are so we can be humble, but show us how much you love us so that we can go into the world in strength. And guide us now as we pray.